smiling since the first time I saw that video. I think it was awesome. An opportunity to celebrate. It's a joy to see children honor and, uh, and celebrate their fathers. And in so doing, not just express their appreciation for their fathers, but express their appreciation for the father that stands behind fathers. The ultimate father who loves them and how those fathers point them to him. Well, I didn't uh, introduce myself, so if you don't know me, my name is Eric Solomon. I'm the TBC campus pastor here, um, and I have the privilege and the honor of serving God's people as we gather in this place, as we gather in these neighborhoods in Streamwood, and I am just grateful for us to be able to open up God's word. Uh, it's a privilege, really. I, I, so I started to feel this a lot in the middle of the pandemic when we weren't able to gather, and then when we were able to regather, and even as things have changed, that it is a privilege to gather together as a body of believers. As an expression of the larger global historical familia of God. The beauty of gathering, I kind of mentioned at the beginning, is that together we get the opportunity to both recognize that we're not perfect, that we're broken, and that we need Jesus. That we don't have it all together and that that's okay. Because like I said at the beginning, we come to the one who can put all those broken pieces in the right place. We come to the one who made us into family in the first place through Jesus. We're not perfect, but we are loved, and we are growing in our love for God and for each other by God's grace and by God's spirit. Now, one of the ways that I do want to present to you before we jump into God's word that we would like to, as a a community, help grow in that love, Uh, just a quick thing. You might have received this this past week. We sent out a survey, and I know if you're anything like me, if you see survey anywhere in the subject line, anywhere even in the text, immediately go to delete. I will forgive you for doing that for this email. Can you please fill out this survey and tell us how we can better serve you? How we can better love you? Clearly that joke did not land, but that's okay. (laughs) That one, there we go. So all I'm asking is for you guys to fill that out. If you don't want to do it digitally, that's okay. We should have hard copies for you. And if you're not even getting these emails, you can do the survey at trivillagechurch.org slash survey. And if you're not receiving our emails, that's a bigger problem. This is one of the primary ways we communicate with you. So we're going to ask you to re-sign up for those emails if you want to stay in communication with us at trivillagechurch.org slash newsletter. So either slash survey to fill out the survey or slash newsletter to to re-sign up. With that said, let's continue in worship this morning by sitting under God's word and and expecting him to work in us by his spirit and shape us more like Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, please open them up to Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6. If you're joining us online, I'm going to encourage you to do the same. I'm going to ask if you're able to please stand as we read from God's word together. We're in Ephesians 6 verse 4. When you're there, say amen. All right, people of God, hear God's word from Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. This is God's word. You may be seated. Father God, together we sit under your word this morning. We trust you to use your word by your spirit to change us to make us more like Jesus, to shape us into who you have called us to be. And we pray that you would help us to be receptive and willing to be challenged this morning by your word. Help us to celebrate and to reflect. Help us to participate in the preaching of your word by responding to your word in our hearts and in our lives. Lord, this morning we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts in this space would be a, a true act of worship, an acceptable sacrifice of praise in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Don't take out my brains. These are the words that I was screaming while I was on the table as a doctor tried to stitch me up when I was in fifth grade because I was frightened that what had happened to me was actually way worse than it actually was. 
Eventually, they had to strap me down so that they could stitch and staple my skull shut after I had cracked it on the playground chasing a girl, but that is a story for another day. At this point that I was strapped down on the table, all I could keep screaming was, Mommy, Mommy. And the doctor turned to my dad, and I'm not sure why he asked this, but he said, he's trying to figure out, is this some Spanish I don't understand? He didn't quite catch Mommy. And he's like, what is he saying? And my dad said, that's the last cry for help. I... I'm so thankful that that moment was not more serious than it was, that my brains were still intact and my skull was not cracked open, that my skull was not fractured, which is a relief because if you're in the medical field, you know that fractures, especially in the skull, can be really serious. Fractures which can range from a thin crack to a complete break are severe, not just because of how big they are, but because of where they are in the body. Bones can fracture in a lot of different ways and in a lot of different places, but a fracture in your skull is at a different level of danger than a fracture in your arm or your leg. And so this morning on Father's Day, we're going to together as a family go to the Bible to read our radiology report, to see the x-rays God takes of our souls, to see the scans of fathers among the people of God, but also scans of our own hearts that we might see together the way in which the God of Father heals fathers with the gospel for his glory and the good of his people, the good of all of his people. So you might be thinking, Eric, you're talking about fathers, so why in the world should I listen to you if I'm not a father? That's a great question. I'm very glad that you guys are bold this morning to ask that question. Here's why. Because fractured fathers fundamentally affect everyone within the people of God. For example, in one way or another, we all have fathers. Right? Whether those fathers have been heroes or hated, whether they have been present or absent, whether they are related by blood or by love, we all have a category for father, and the Bible speaks to that category. Not because God just wants a good bunch of good-behaving dads in his family, because at a deeper level, he wants gospel-believing dads in his family. And on a deeper level still, because God has revealed himself as the ultimate father, the one that all fatherhood comes from. So maybe you're here this morning and, and you are a dad. Well, however you came to be a dad, whether it was by biology or circumstance, maybe you're desperate to be a good dad. Maybe you want to be like the father you had or maybe better than the father you had. However you came in, this sermon is for you. Or maybe you're here and you've been the victim of a dad who did not live up to his God-given calling to protect and to shepherd, to love and to serve. Maybe the picture that you have of a dad is one of violence and domination. A picture that is scary and exploiting. And you feel the pain and grief of this every year at Father's Day. This sermon is for you. However you've come into this place in this morning, on this day meant to celebrate fatherhood, this sermon is for you because... To continue my medical analogy, most fractures happen when a bone is impacted by more force or pressure than it can support. And therefore, fractured fathers are fractured because of sin. Because by their own evil, they have tried to carry a weight that is only for God to carry. They have usurped the power that God has for himself and taken it on themselves because they think that they have a capital F in front of their calling as father. Though fractures can rage in size and location, all fathers, and really all of us in this community, share at least one fracture that runs the length of our souls. 
And the only solution is the God who has created a new family, who has adopted all of us into his family as children, and who loves and serves his family like a good father loves and serves his family. The only solution is the God of fathers. The God who is our father. Which is why this morning we camp out in this one verse in Ephesians 6-4 to see how the gospel changes the life of God's people through this specific calling of fatherhood. Now there are many callings through which God changes the life of his people through which he shapes us. This morning we're just zeroing in on one, but that is not to the detriment of others. That is not to lower any others. That is to focus on one for the good of God's people in this morning. Amen? And in this verse, God does this by communicating a contrast. You know how much I like words and what they're doing, and that's how we're going to break down this morning. He communicates a contrast that we should pay attention to. By making this contrast, he calls fathers into a particular way of life. He calls the family of God to expect and encourage a particular way of life among fathers, a way of life that is founded upon God's identity as father. So here's the contrast we see in this text. Fractured fathers fracture others, and faithful fathers cultivate faithfulness to God. Fractured fathers fracture others while faithful fathers cultivate faithfulness to God. Try saying that three times fast. I practice that one a lot. Fathers with the fracture that run down the length of their soul inevitably pass that fracture on to others. Not just their children, but the community that surrounds them. Because like I said earlier, fatherhood affects everyone in the family of God, just like motherhood does, just like how we live out our marriages, just like how we live out our singleness and how we live out our vocations and our jobs and where we live in our neighborhoods and how we live out the gospel in those contexts. Fatherhood, like all of these examples, is another important context in which we live out the gospel. And so this morning, what I'm going to be doing is weaving in and out of general and specific applications, speaking to fatherhood directly while at the same time speaking to the whole community in mind. So you got to track with me. For example, part of what we will look at this morning is that fathers must reflect the gospel in their parenting because in so doing, they reflect the gospel for the whole community. Just like motherhood and all these other callings do it in their own unique way. And we need all of these unique ways so that we can see the gospel in all of its beauty. That's why God put us all together. And so this morning, the way that we're going to do that is to start not with fathers, but with the father of fathers, looking at how fatherhood is derived from him. Then we'll break down the text into those two parts, those contrasts I was talking about, a fatherhood don't and a fatherhood do, God's prohibition and God's command to fathers. So we start where we all should start, with God. God, the father who saved us and made us his. God, the father who created this family called the church and made us his children through adoption. We start with fatherhood derived. Our text that I just read this morning is found in a book called Ephesians. Right? A letter that Paul the Apostle has written to a church that is located in a city called Ephesus. And by the time we get to chapter 6, where our text is, the last chapter of the letter, Paul has actually been building something all throughout this letter. He started this building project where in the first three chapters, Paul has actually spent most of his time pouring concrete. Laying the foundation of the gospel, the groundwork of the gospel, before he gets to the brickwork of his commands on how to live out a life of the gospel, a life that pleases God. Well, when we get to this groundwork, this foundation, this concrete, these three chapters, he refers to God like Jesus taught his disciples to refer to God over and over again. Father. And then in chapter 3, he does something really uh, He emphasizes, he underlines, he does something really interesting right before he transitions into chapter 4. 
Look at the text in verse, chapter 3, verse 14 through 15. He says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Okay, let me start. Let me not get ahead of myself. For what reason? Well, Paul, like I said, up until this point, has been explaining the gospel and its implications for God's people. Specifically, he has been describing a new kind of people that have been brought together by that gospel. And so here at the end of these three chapters, he wraps it all up by praying in light of that gospel, praying because of that gospel for this reason. But who is he praying to? Well, he tells us that he kneels to God the Father. God the Father, whose very name unites every family in heaven and on earth, who unites people from every family and from every place on earth in Christ, in this new family, the church. So before the Bible ever gets to what it means to be a good dad in this text, it establishes first and foremost who the ultimate father is, God himself. And so the first piece of context that we need before we get to chapter, or chapter 6, verse 4, is we need to frame our text through the lens of God the Father. But there's another piece of context I want to get to that's in the next section that starts off in chapters 4, verses through 6, or chapter 4 through 6. Here, Paul actually starts laying the brickwork that I mentioned, talking about the way the life is supposed to be lived by the gospel. And at the beginning of chapter 5, he writes this, verse 1, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and called us to imitate God as children, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering. And sacrifice to God. What Paul is calling us to do here in this moment, following God's example, he's calling us to imitate God as children who are loved. To imitate God. That, imita- that imitation is something we've been specifically talking about all these weeks when we've been in 1 Corinthians 13. Living this life of love. A love that is defined by the sacrifice of Jesus. And here again is defined in this text by that sacrifice. So the, the second piece of context we use to frame our text when we get to chapter 6 verse 4 is that God names our identity as children who imitate. God is our father and we are his children and he calls us to imitate him in love. Hold on to all, the, all of those as we continue to build this. The gospel comes first. We become his children. But there is a life that the gospel transforms us into. And it is a life of loving imitation of our Father. But let me keep building out this concept. We're in Ephesians. I'm going to jump out and then come back to Ephesians. Because there's this concept of God as Father needs a little bit more explaining before we get to what God is calling us to do as we imitate him as fathers. Or as the, the community helps fathers imitate him as fathers. And so I'm going to go to 1 John 3, 1, where John writes this. He says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and this is what we are. The characteristic that marks God as Father and us as children is the great love of God. When Paul tells us to imitate God, it's not that that we imitate God like my daughters imitate me when they try to put my shoes on and stumble through the house. We're not putting on something that's not our size. What we're doing is we're imitating the love that he has already shown us. The love by which we became children in the first place. It's more like when my daughters imitate me when we play a game that we call Roar. Where I stomp around the house trying to get them, like that child was saying in the video. And then it's their turn to do the same. And they start to stomp and make the noises in their own way, but in a way that I have modeled for them. We are called to imitate God as children whose identity as children is formed by, is characterized by God's love for us. God is Father We are his children who are loved in order to love. The theological shorthand for this is adoption. God has adopted us into his family. He has made us into his children because he wants us. He really and truly wants us. 
No one forced his hand. We didn't get into his family because we have some special heritage or special pedigree or because we're part of some special club that we were in. It's because God wanted to make us his kids. And so he made a way to our adoption through his son's death and resurrection. When we believe, we're not only given a new heart so that we can live life as God designed it to live, to be lived, we, we actually get a new identity, a new calling. We are called children of God. Which is why when Jesus taught his disciples to pray in Matthew 6, 9, he says, this is how you should pray, our Father in heaven. Do you know how radical the theology of adoption is? I, I mean, up until Jesus does this in Matthew 6, no one, and I mean no one, addresses God directly as Father. Yes, the Bible talks, has, uses the imagery of God as Father. It uses the imagery of sonship for Israel. When all, but no one ever talked to God when they prayed and addressed him as Father. Because when you do that, you're actually presuming that you have some kind of special relationship with God. But Jesus very clearly wants us, wants his disciples to understand that because of him, something has fundamentally changed in our relationship with him. And we do have a special relationship with him, an intimate and close relationship with him because he has adopted us as his children. But this family is only for those who have become part of that family of God by faith. There is an idea that's floating around that a child, child of everyone is a child of God, which is a nice idea, but what ends up happening is we're confusing creation with childhood. Everyone is created by God in God's image with inherent dignity and worth, but before God rescues us from sin and adopts us into family, we are not his children. We're not even wayward children. We are rebels. We are orphans. We are lost in our own sin and without hope in the world. And so because of Jesus and by the gospel, God the Father saves us from sin, gives us new heart, fills us with his spirit, and adopts us into his family. And we are now called children of God. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. Whose father is he? He is the father of all who have come to him, have responded to his call of salvation by faith. God is our father. We are his children called to imitate him having been adopted into his family because by faith we believe in Jesus and his sacrifice for our sin. We believe that Jesus resurrected and came back to life for us. And so with all of that context, I want us to make our way back to our text in Ephesians 6, but I do want to make a pit stop at Ephesians 5, 15 through 18. The reason I want to stop here is because in the immediate context of our text, and let me say when I'm saying all these things, I want to teach you all how, how to read your Bibles too, how to connect the dots across your Bible to look at the immediate context that's right above or below the text that you're reading when you read in the morning or when you read at night or whenever you read your Bibles, that you can do this work too. So the immediate context of our text is 5, 15 through 18, which forms this kind of umbrella over Paul's commands. He says this, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. The command that we get to fathers in Ephesians 6.4 is a command that is given in the context of this larger command to live wisely, to live in a Spirit-filled way, focused on God's will. In other words, the fatherhood that Paul is about to reimagine among God's people is a fatherhood that is derived from God himself, empowered by God himself, in order to glorify God himself and build up his people. So it is in this context that Paul writes these words. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. 
You see, fatherhood derived does not just stay at an intellectual level. It's not just something that you have to understand about God that he is father. That's why Ephesians 4 through 6 is so important for us as Christians. Because it tells us that as Christians, our gospel understanding must work its way out in our lives. Ephesians 1 through 3 has to lead to Ephesians 4 through 6. The truth that God is our ultimate father and the one that fatherhood is derived from must lead fathers as well as the entire community of God's people that surrounds these fathers to see the gospel implications of these texts that form the fatherhood don't and fatherhood do of this passage and form any of the other commands in this section. But that's for another sermon. We're still in verse 4. Paul sees the brokenness of fathers, and he sees the beauty of the gospel, and he imagines a world where instead of fractured fathers that fracture others, the people of God are marked by faithful fathers who cultivate faithfulness to God. Where our identity as children and God's identity as father sits in the background of this command. But what is front and center is the contrast that I mentioned. So let's take the time to actually walk through this verse and see what God is actually doing in his people and his family. Because it starts with this fatherhood don't at the beginning of verse 4. Paul begins not by telling fathers how to use their authority in the family, but by telling fathers how to not use their authority, how to restrain their authority, because he recognizes that fractured fathers fracture others. Look at the text. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. During Paul's time, fathers were almost operated culturally as kings in their families. They had full power and authority over their household. They, they determined whether newborn babies were able to live. They had the power to sell their children into slavery, to punish them as harshly as they wanted to. They could even put their children to death. They didn't have to wait for some kind of soldier or officer to come. Now, just because I mentioned this power, because they had this power, does not mean that every father during this time operated like this, but it does communicate what the culture surrounding Paul and the Ephesians Christians thought about family and about fathers and the relationship that they had with their children. And so when Paul writes these words, we have to recognize that Paul starts from an incredibly countercultural space. Instead of expanding or even elevating father's authorities, he limits it. The picture of fatherhood he paints is of someone who exercises self-control and restraint, who is gentle and patient, who does not exasperate or provoke children to anger. And it is a shocking contrast to the fatherhood that surrounded the church at this time, which starts to make me wonder before we even get into what this looks like, is how shocking, how countercultural is the way in which we live out our callings within this community to a watching world? How shocking and countercultural is the way in which we live out our fatherhood, our parenting, our marriages, our singleness, our vocations, how we live in our neighborhoods. How shocking and countercultural is it? Not shocking for shocking's sake, but because we're following a God who says life is lived a different way, with God at the center, not with me at the center. So remember our context as you reflect on that question, right? I don't want to just fill this with a bunch of, hey, do's and do nots, because the context of this is a spirit-filled Christian living out this life. A spirit-filled Christian who has been saved by the gospel. The command to restrain anger, to not exasperate the children God has given, is a command that is obeyed in the context of the work of the Spirit. And so, fathers, directly speaking to you, we rely on the Holy Spirit and His power to control our actions and our attitudes, to keep us from exasperating our children it is only spirit-dependent fathers that are able to live out their calling as fathers, just like we all must depend on the spirit to live out our callings in this life. 
But to get intensely practical, like I said, weaving in and out of general specific application, there's a book that uh, I was reading that I read many times in my life. There's a chapter in there about fatherhood. It's a book called Disciplines of a Godly Man by Kent Hughes. And he focuses on this verse, and he lists out a few ways that I've personally found helpful to define ways that can exasperate your children. So when I say this, these are not the only ways in which fathers can exasperate your children. Unfortunately, we are too creative for that. But I hope that this might inspire you to think about the ways in which fathers or the fathers you know or the fathers in this community might do that and ways in which you might bring the gospel to those spaces. Well, the five ways that he gives start with criticism. And this is a hard one for me. Because if you know anything about me, I am the first person in the room to notice any spelling errors on any signs that are up anywhere. I don't know why God has blessed me with that curse. Criticism. Whether it's withholding praise or affirmation or giving some backhanded, that was good, but you should do better next time. Criticism has the potential to destroy a child, to ruin a life. It grinds the teeth and weighs the soul down with bitterness and anger and resentment, which is why in a parallel verse in Colossians 3.21, Paul restates his command from Ephesians 6.4 like this. He says, fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Criticism has the power to break the spirit of a child. Fathers, do not exasperate your children through criticism. Be the kind of father who notices and celebrates the good, who knows how to give correction when it's appropriate, who is wise enough to have good timing and to know whether or not a correction is even necessary. Imitate God the Father and his love for us. The way he corrects out of love and always comes with grace. The Father who runs to meet us with grace when we have wandered far from home and make our way back rather than giving criticism or scolding. The second area of exasperation is being authoritarian. Fathers avoid exasperating your children through legalism. With a way of life that is not just ordered with rules, but is dictated and dominated by commands. With an authority that overreaches or grips too tightly. There are children turned adults all around us who have struggled with legalism all their lives. Who may have rejected its false gospel ways biblically, but are still rocked by it emotionally and spiritually. Authoritarian fathers fail because they fail to trust God. That is not how God treats us. He does not dominate with commands. He loves and leads and serves and commands with grace, with gentleness. Well, the next way to exasperate, I won't belabor these points, is anger or irritability. I tell people often when uh, they're either getting married or, or having children that I never knew how selfish I was until I got married, and I never knew how angry I was until I had kids. The Lord is sanctifying me even now. Fathers, do not exasperate your children through an angry disposition. Refuse to let whatever happens out there in the world drive you to anger at home when your child says your name a hundred times or wants to play with you the moment you walk through the door you can't even put your bags down or whatever else it might be. The quickest way to drive a child to anger is to model it for them. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Do not provoke them to anger with your anger. God, the Father, the one we imitate is patient. He is long-suffering. His anger does not just flare up without reason, and, and, and he shows grace and mercy to his children, to us. Well, the last two ways that are listed are inconsistency and favoritism. Fathers, keep your promises. Keep the rules of your family consistent. Avoid picking favorites. No, when I say that, I don't mean that every child needs to be treated the same. A pastor once told me that, that having kids is like being given a garden that you didn't plant. You might have an oak tree and a rose bush and a patch of tulips. 
And they all need special attention. Different attention, but they all need attention. Don't pick favorites. Fathers, do not exasperate your children with inconsistency or favoritism. The God of fathers is consistent in the way he deals with his people, even if he does deal with us individually as well as communally. Lovingly. Not as some kind of robot, but as a loving father in relationship with his kids. There are no favorites with God the Father. Each one of us is worth the ultimate price, the death of Jesus. Each one of us is worth leaving heaven and moving earth to save, to adopt, to call us his own. So TVC, my reminder to all of us as we talk about, hey, fathers, do not do this, is that we're all broken. Right? So even as we read the command to fathers to not exasperate the children, we have to read it in the context of grace. So fathers, you need to read this in the context of grace. Family, when you talk to fathers, when you support fathers, when you encourage fathers, you need to read it in the context of grace. We recognize the reality that fractured fathers fracture others, and their brokenness causes them to leak, and it is only with new hearts and the Spirit of God fueling them that fractured fathers become faithful fathers. But when this transformation begins, all the way to the core of who they are, by God's grace in this familia, we will have faithful fathers who cultivate that faithfulness to God. And so this is the big contrast in our passage. The do that follows the don't. God prohibits father from, fathers from behaviors that lead to children to anger, and he commands the fathers among his people to recognize the precious gift that children are, not just to their family, but to the entire family of God. God reminds his family that fathers in his family act in a certain kind of way. In the words of Ephesians 6, 4, Christian fathers, bring up your children, bring up their children in the training and instruction of the Lord. Well, what in the world does that mean? Well, the text actually, this verse, this section breaks down into three parts, into bring up, into training, and into instruction. And similar to the previous command, I really appreciated the way Kent Hughes broke this down. He, he actually talks about raising children in tenderness through training and instruction, listing the first as a how and the next two as what's. But the reason that he sums up, bring up with the word tenderness is something that I found incredibly interesting and I want to connect here with you so you can see what I mean, is that a few verses earlier, the word that's used for bring up is used in another context. In Ephesians 5.29, Paul writes this, After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. The word feed here actually translates the same word that's translated as bring up in our verse. And in both cases, it's communicating this idea of nourishing, providing what is necessary for healthy growth. Nourish your body, nourish your children, which communicates this kind of tenderness and care that is required, the same kind of tenderness that God the Father has for us, the kind of care that too often in our society has been listed as some kind of uh, less manly way of being. But the reality for our understanding of God is that therefore our understanding of fathers is that tenderness is not some female or male characteristic, it is a God characteristic. And we imitate God when we are tender, when we are gentle, when we are kind. So I'll run right through this. It was God who was in the gentle whisper speaking to Elijah in 1 Kings 19. Not in the great powerful wind, not in the earthquake, not in the fire, but in a gentle whisper. It was Jesus, the one who incarnated, who embodied the love of the Father that says in Matthew 11 that he is gentle and humble in heart, who invites us to his gentle heart to find rest for our weary souls. Fathers, imitate God and be tender, be gentle. Bring up your children not with a heavy hand, but with a gentle heart, and in so doing, live out your gospel identity as a father. 
Well, if the how is tenderness, the verse also gives us the what? The training and the instruction of the Lord. What is that training and instruction? What it is fathers, and it is also parents and the whole church family even, taking part in raising children in the church who not only know who God is and what he has done, but have experienced it within the context of the church family. It is by discipling and teaching, leading children to the God who made them, the only one who can save them. It is to know that the command to train and instruct is bigger than just for one person, bigger than just for fathers and just for families, but for the family of God. And yet at the same time, it is a responsibility that is never surrendered completely to a kids program or a youth program or a school curriculum, all necessary, helpful ways to disciple. But fathers, parents, you are also responsible for discipling your children. You are primarily responsible for discipling your children. Fathers, you are responsible to evangelize your children, to disciple your children, to train them in the ways of the Lord that they might see him as good. Not as capricious, not as angry, not someone that's just going to fly off the handle at any point. Mothers, you are responsible in the same way to disciple your children, to evangelize your children. Family of God, we are responsible for helping parents do this. We are responsible for the kids in this family as well. The Lord has called us together to do this. Together. I have no idea where I am in my notes right now. At a very practical level, sorry, that just came out of me and I couldn't stop it. At a very practical level, what this means is things like explaining to your children what the world, the Bible means. To take a story and break it down and say, hey, this is what, Papa, this is what God is doing here. Mama, this is what God is trying to teach us. This is how God is showing us who he is. It means not just talking the talk, but walking the walk. It means living out your Christian life in front of your children. Helping them connect what we say with what we do. It means saying sorry and asking for forgiveness from your children to show what humility and confession and repentance looks like. It means showing mercy and punishment and explaining the mercy of God in Christ. It means serving together as a family and explaining how God in Christ has served us by dying on the cross. It means all of these different avenues and so many more that you can be creative and connecting, but it means that we're responsible to do that. And all of this takes time. It takes discipline and dedication. As kids grow, the training and instruction of the Lord has to grow with them. Our skill in communicating God's truth should be growing with them. We need to take the long view. We need to actually apply time and patience and actually wanting to grow in our skills in doing this if this is our primary responsibility. How fathers live out their callings at home and at church and how we as a community live out our calling to raise the children that God has placed within our body here. None of that is secondary. It is not a byproduct of church because parents just need someone to watch their kids on Sunday. The children that God has placed here among us, they're not the future of the church. They are the church today. And so we come alongside them, fathers and mothers. We come alongside them as the family of God to help them obey God's command. To bring up children in his training and his instruction. Not just because these children are their responsibility and they need some help for the meantime. But because there is just something beautiful that happens within the family of God through the raising of children. And what that beautiful thing is, is that the gospel is proclaimed. A gospel that's not just for children and not just for parents, but for all of us. 
Which is why Paul is so concerned with the way fathers raise their children. Which is why in that whole context of that chapter, Paul is so concerned about the way marriages work their way out. The way children are. The way we engage all these different levels of society. Because they're all pictures, beautiful pictures of the gospel. But even as I elevate children and parents and the gospel picture that they paint, as well as the role of the whole family of God in this, I do want to uh, tattletale. I think that's the word I want to use. I want to snitch on our hearts in this because the reality is our hearts are really prone to idols and children are no different. We can all make children into idols, whether it is through reliving our glory days or what we wished were our glory days, whether it's uh, trying to discipline them for making us look bad in front of others or, or focusing way too much on, on kids' ministry to the neglect of other things else or families that make children the end-all, be-all. I, I, I also recognize that even as I say this, as I make this caution, that there are parents within our family here who struggle every time we talk about families and parenting and children who hurt because they desire the good gifts of children and for some reason God has not granted it to them. Or, or for some reason they, they, they have lost children. I want you to hear me when I say this, that this community here, this family, we see you. We see your pain. We see the frustration. We see what it's done. We, you are not forgotten and it is not swept under the rug it is a good desire. And as your pastor, I would urge you to keep bringing that desire to God. Keep bringing that pain to God so that that desire, that good desire, doesn't become a God desire. And know that even more than us, he's the one who sees you more perfectly than we ever could. He's the one who loves you, and by God's grace, I hope he is using us to love you. He knows what it's like to lose a child. He knows your pain, and, and you are not defined by the number of children you have. You're defined by the love of God, even in the midst of your pain. It's this love that God calls us to imitate. It is this love that, in specific, he calls fathers to imitate in this verse, to bring up children in his training and instruction with the emphasis on the final phrase of our text, of the Lord. It is God who stands behind fathers, who stands behind parents as they instruct and train their children. It is God that parents are accountable to and God that they should be communicating. Not their own preferences, their own ideas, or their own power, but his. So I want you to remember the context. All of this is done within the spirit of God. Which means that no one here has enough power or logic to raise godly children who love Jesus. Our parenting, our fathering our, our, all is not centered on us. It's not even centered on our children. It is centered on Christ, the Lord. And so we recognize, even as we talk about all this, what I've been saying this whole time, we recognize the sin of fathers. That fractured fathers fracture others. Sin has broken fathers, and the fracture runs all the way down the middle of the soul. And just like all of us in this space, we need a savior. We need a rescuer. We are in desperate need of the father's rescue. And I want to end our time on the father's rescue because the only way for fathers to live out their calling, for us as a community to encourage and support fathers to live out that calling, for us to live out all the other callings that we have in our lives is by recognizing our shared identity as rescued by God. 
Psalm 103, 13 through 14, I have it up on the screen, describes God's character like this. It says, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. God, our Father, is filled with compassion, and he knows that we are human. He knows our weaknesses, and he rescues us from our sin. He is a good father. A good father who is never too caught up with work or what they're doing. A good father who always provides, who is never absent or indifferent to us. He listens when we talk to him. He is all wise and all knowing, so he actually knows what is actually best for us. He loves us so much. He loves us too much to leave us where we are. And so he came to us and he rescued us. Romans 8.15 talks about how his compassionate character did this. It says, The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. God the Father has adopted us by his spirit. The same spirit that, that bubbles up inside of us and comes out with the words, Abba, Father. The same spirit that draws us to God and makes possible this radical and, let's be honest, scandalous reality that we can now actually say that we are children of God. Because of sin, fractured fathers fracture others. But because of Jesus, because of God's work in Christ, who died on the cross and came back to life three days later, now fathers faithful to God are transformed into faithful fathers who cultivate that faithfulness to God who cultivate that faithfulness even in the community of the church by being, living out this calling. Ephesians 6.4 is a verse that is for all of us as a community at the same time that it is for fathers in specific. And so we celebrate. We celebrate you fathers who are living into that calling, who are stepping into what that looks like, even when it's hard, especially when it's hard, who are, are trying to follow Jesus and point your children to Jesus. Our calling as Christians is to make disciples, and fathers, you get the chance to make the disciples of your children by the Spirit of God. Not perfect, not without frustration, there'll be seasons of pain and stress and difficulty, but dependent on God the Father by His Spirit, we refuse as fathers who are dependent on Him to exasperate our children. We seek to bring them up in the same instruction and training of the Lord that we have received. And yet, even when we do this, fathers, I need you to understand that you are not the one that is responsible for your child's salvation. Because you see, who is responsible for anyone's salvation? Jesus. Unfortunately, parents take too much blame when things go wrong and too much credit when things go right. And so I say this for all the parents who have children that have walked away from the faith. Keep praying. Because the only one who can save him is the one that you're praying to. Familia of God, this verse is for us as well because we are called to be part of this new family, this household of God. And as such, we have to collectively recognize God's fatherhood. We have to call the fathers in this family, the, the biological, fostering, adoptive, spiritual fathers, the, the grandfathers and father figures to step into the calling that the Lord has given them. To live out their calling by the power of the Spirit founded upon the gospel, we as a community have a responsibility to each other. We also see in this verse something that is unique in its perspective about children, that is unique to Christianity. A, pers a perspective that refuses to let kids be an afterthought or bear the burden of idolatry. A perspective that follows the one who said, let the little ones come to me. Who protects children. Who reminds each of us that we are his children. His little ones that he loves both tenderly and fiercely. 
the last thing I want to say is that this verse is a verse that calls us to prayer. If this is all supposed to be dependent upon the Spirit, we have to go to the one that has the power to do all this. To pray for, for fathers and for families and for our church family and for children to live into the callings that the Lord has given us. How this entire family has a part to play in this. To pray that we might make disciples of these children. Would you pray with me? Father God, this morning we thank you. We thank you for adopting us as your children and bringing us into your family. Like the song that we're about to sing reminds us, you are a father with wide open arms. A father that overflows with grace and mercy and who pursues us in love. And we celebrate this morning that in Christ we have a Savior who bought our forgiveness with his blood. But God, we also have to confess that we grieve sometimes on this day. We grieve with those here who are suffering with things like infertility, who want to be fathers and want to be mothers, but whose prayers you have not answered yet. We pray for those here who have experienced miscarriages, those who are parents already, even though they have not met their kids and won't until the resurrection at the end of time. Would you meet them in their pain with your comfort, in their suffering with your presence, in their isolation with your people? We pray for those who have adopted children here, who are serving children through fostering and adopting and safe families. We pray for strength and endurance and patience and love. Pray that you would help us as a family to come alongside them and love them and support them as they live out the calling that you have given them. We pray that you would stir more hearts to live out your love in this particular way. We pray that you would stir the hearts of fathers here with your gospel of grace to commit and recommit daily to bringing up their children in the instruction and training that you have given us in your word. We pray and we grieve and we celebrate and we trust you in all of it. Thank you for being a good father that we can trust. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.